Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 56 for February 2016. I am your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey. With me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? That's me. How are you, Quinn? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I've had a, had a very retro-filled uh, couple of weeks since we last yeah? recorded. So, uh, Tell me yeah, about it's it. been good. Uh, well, let's see. I was uh, I was up in the Bay Area um, recently. There's a, a koala sanctuary up there that I wanted to go see. And uh, while I was in the area, I thought, well, there's a computer history museum or something here, right? So, uh, I, uh, so I went and saw that. And, How was uh, it? I would describe it as neat but also weird. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Why they have weird? A, yeah, so well, I'll start with the neat. Uh, they have a lot of really cool hardware there, uh, a lot of stuff that you know, you'll know you never see anywhere else. There's pieces of ENIAC and UNIVAC and uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, magnetic drum memory and just other crazy contraptions that uh, you sort of only heard of. But then uh, it's also weird because when you start to get into the sort of post-60s, you know, late 70s stuff, they the collection gets pretty spotty. Uh, you know, for example, they have a couple of Apple IIs, but neither of them are Rev Zeros, which seems like an oversight. Uh, in fact, both of them just like look like pretty run-of-the-mill kind of late-run uh, twos. Uh, and uh, you know, they and they have some other, you know, another groups of of eight bits as well. Uh, but they have you know strange gaps. There's a lot of you know popular models that they they don't have for some reason, and uh, they have a little game console section, but again, significant models that aren't there. Uh, so it's sort of a, there's sort of weird gaps in the collection, but uh, you know, it was pretty cool to see. Uh, they have a really, really beautiful uh, PET 2001 there. If you want to see what one of those looks like brand new, they have one. Uh, they have an Apple One, of course, probably the most expensive thing in the building uh, based on recent auctions. So uh, yeah, and the layout is very confusing. Actually, it's a bit like an Ikea, like it's a sort of rat maze and you're not sure if you've missed stuff uh, or something, but... Uh, oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, but no, I definitely recommend it. It, uh, it was a good time. Great. Uh, what about you? Have you been up to anything? Uh, well, I've actually been up to, to watching you kind of go viral. I see your name all <laughs> over the place now. Yeah, that, I went viral and it was weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, strangest thing. So. Uh, uh, Listeners might know I also have a blog where I post about Apple II stuff and various hacking projects. And, uh, you know, last month we talked about how I had uh, dug out uh, my floppy disk collection from mom's basement and was going through it. And, uh, you know, I'd cleaned up a, an old Laser 128 floppy drive. And uh, I just, you know, part of the blog post, there was a video of, of me booting uh, Gemstone Warrior, uh, an old favorite of mine, and uh, happened to be the first disk on the pile. So I booted that up. And uh, for some reason, uh, TechCrunch picked up that uh, article and uh, they posted it. And then my world blew up after <laughs> that. Uh, the, the, the sort of 48 hours after that is sort of a blur. But um, the, uh, the, the video, which, by the way, was filmed shaky cam holding it in my hand on an iPhone 5 with a shattered lens. So it's all fuzzy and weird. Uh, it was just a throwaway, never intended to be anything. The video went from 60 views to 160,000 in about five hours. Awesome. And uh, yeah, and the TechCrunch synopsis of my blog post was 
basically entirely wrong, which was pretty <laughs> pretty amusing. Uh, they clearly didn't really read it. They just kind of skimmed it. Uh, they talked about how this was the first time in 20 years I had turned on my Apple II GS and just like like every detail of the story was wrong. Um, so and then of course all these other tech blogs pick that up and they just you know they copy and paste each other's uh, you know synopses and change a few words here and there. Uh, so that, uh, yeah, that's just the whole thing just spiraled out of control. And then it started uh, trending on Facebook and then all my friends noticed. And then, yeah, uh, I got some viral video company started contacting me. They were super pushy. I got about 100 messages from them through Twitter, email, Facebook, YouTube comments, blog comments, you know. Uh, yeah, it was... It was a very strange experience. Uh, I say that I joke that every single app on my phone had red numbers on it uh, for various <laughs> reasons. So, uh, and then after a couple of days, uh, the internet blinked and I was no longer a thing, and that was it. So, and I didn't make a dime off of it, as far as I know. But uh, it was an interesting experience, nonetheless. Yeah, I, I knew it. I knew something was going on when my non-Apple II friends were sending me links to your your blog into the to the video that you posted so <laughs> yeah i just i first heard of it because my coworkers were sending me screenshots of the facebook uh trending uh box and i was like what what, what what's going on <laughs> <laughs> my brain can't process this and then i i learned i found out the hard way that youtube will send you a push notification uh every single time someone comments on one of your videos and that I didn't know it did that because I've never really had that happen. And uh, so I, I was getting spammed, like push notifications from YouTube for two days straight. And because uh, there was something like a thousand comments on the on the uh, video in a couple of days. And I could not figure out how to shut them off. <laughs> so my phone was just blowing up for two days. Wow. Uh, so, however, uh, one very uh, excellent thing happened as a result of this. Uh, the, uh, of course the video of Gemstone Warrior was, was what went the most viral, you know, the blog post went a little bit, but mostly people shared the video and, uh, a fellow by the name of, uh, Peter Lunt, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, uh, happened to see it and he commented on, uh, on the blog post and, uh, he is, of course, is one of the authors of Gemstone Warrior and, uh, was hopefully thrilled to see, uh, his fine work, uh, show up once again on the internet. And uh, he joins us here today. Hi, I'm Burger Becky. If you have an Apple II, you've probably played one of my games. You should listen to the Open Apple Podcast. Say hello, Peter. Hi, Quinn. And, <laughs> and Mike. Quinn and Mike. Yeah, hi. Yes. Um, it's Lount. It's Lount, like in uh, Count. Ah, okay. Lount. Peter Lount. All right. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the show. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah, we're glad to have you here to, to talk about Gemstone Warrior and uh, the sequel. It was sure fun seeing it blow up there and, uh, you know, uh, go viral. And uh, after, what is it, uh, 31, 32 years? So, uh, yeah, what was your first reaction when you saw that, saw that video and you're like, hey, I know that? Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was awesome. Interesting seeing, talking with fans after all these years. Did you did you sort of know there was still an Apple II kind of community out here, or was it news to you as well? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've known there's there's an active Apple II. Um, I've of course looked into various simulators, and and uh, actually a couple years ago now I was uh, studying field programmable gate array chips, and there's an Apple II for that. So I was actually getting into the 6502 from the other side, the inside of silicon. So Gemstone Warrior, of course, was written entirely in assembly language. Very cool. 
So uh, why don't you talk about uh, the sort of the genesis of the game? You know, how did it come about and how did you guys get started on it? You were, uh, there was you and one other person working on it. Is that right? Yeah, Truba Gossen. And um, he was a friend. I knew his mother. I worked with her and um, we became friends. We were both uh, fans of Dungeons and Dragons. Although, surprisingly, we never played D&D together, but we were fans of it. One day I asked him if he'd like to make a commercially successful video game in the fall of 82, and he said, yeah. So that was the genesis of it. And we started having ideas and long discussions. Often we go for long walks and talk about it. And um, if you know Vancouver at all, there's an island called Granville Island. We'd... Uh, go and get uh, sandwich material and sit on the grass in the sun and talk about the game and what it was going to do and how it was going to be an adventure game, but also an arcade game. So we fused the two styles of play, which had never been put together as far as we knew. Um, and we were inspired by games like uh, the early Castle Wolfenstein and Load Runner. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think Gemstone Warrior is fairly unique in that it's sort of arguably, you know, the predecessor to things like Diablo. I mean, it's that sort of uh, action adventure roguelike. Um, had you played other roguelikes, like procedurally generated types of games, or were there was there inspiration there as well? Um, th those I found kind of boring. Uh, I, of course, played a lot of different games. Have you know, I had gotten the Apple II in uh, 1980. Uh, when I was working at a computer store selling them out right out of high school. But I, I'd had it, I'd played with it before um, in 79, a little bit. But uh, different games, uh, there, there was, what was it, there was a couple text-based games, adventure games, but that didn't really interest me. I'm more visual. So we, we came up with the idea of doing it as an adventure game and... Uh, figured out ways to do the graphics system. That was the first part of it. And that took four rewrites to get speedy and fast enough to to really make the game uh, interesting because we had to move a lot of graphics around to have it have that adventure feel because we were both big on the coin-op games in the, uh, you know, the arcades. Yeah, I think the uh, the game really stands out in that way. It's it's very visually impressive, uh, you know, big colorful graphics, and uh, uh, I think yeah, it's it's very yeah, it's a beautiful game to look at. Do you can you do you remember the details of of the graphics engine, and can you talk a little bit about how it worked? Oh yeah, um, at first we I, I implemented it, and uh, we wanted the vertical and horizontal scrolling, of course, uh, which you can see in the video. Um, at first, I was moving two pixels at a time, which was incredibly slow because uh, it had had to move 8K of data, two pixels, which meant manipulating bits within bytes. And then I finally figured out the layout of the screen to some degree. And instead of moving bits, I started moving bytes. And that was the fourth version of it. And so... When you, if you look at it carefully, it's actually moving two bytes at a time when you scroll horizontally. And when you scroll vertically, that's a bit different. I actually had to slow down the uh, horizontal scrolling to, I had to rewrite the loops to be more like the vertical scrolling because there's no interrupt timers on the Apple II. So 
I had to balance the 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 horizontal scrolling, which was way faster than the vertical, because um, it was forty bytes wide, and you basically move it. You know, you move one step to the right, and all. So that's moving uh, thirty-eight bytes over, and then filling in the new column. Um, so the vertical, I, I had to rewrite the horizontal one to match the speed of the vertical. And then that was about six months work, four iterations, four different approaches. And then that we honed in on that. And now we had the size of the graphic blocks. So Truba could do a lot of the graphics then. So he did all the artwork and I did all the programming and we did the design equally together. So how did you, how did you get hooked up with SSI to get the game distributed? Ah, yes. Um, that was a, a long road. Um, it, it took us a year and a half of, of development before we even approached anybody. Um, and then um, there was a company in Vancouver um, where Truba's stepfather was working called Sydney Developments. They actually published the game Evolution with Don Matrix, who eventually became the head of Electronic Arts. Uh, Don and uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Sember and, and Don Matrix wrote this game Evolution, and they blew up in, in the television media at the time, so they were, you know, uh, the big stars. And so we were working with Sydney, but then, and they were, they were in negotiations with strategic simulations, and it's just the contract was really bad, so Sydney Developments um, let us out of the contract, and we went direct with strategic simulations. So it was an interesting twist there. And then from there, you, uh, from Gemstone Warrior, you also then developed Gemstone Healer as the sequel to this. Is that right? Yes, we did develop Gemstone Healer. Um, also, we uh, hired a guy named Kevin Pakel who did the Commodore 64 and Atari 800 ports of Gemstone Warrior and Gemstone Healer. And um, he later went on to work at EA and work on their 3D engines, uh, a lot of them, three or four of them. And uh, uh, what, um, do you, if you remember, what innovations or advances were there from, from Warrior to Healer? Um, there wasn't that much technological difference. It was a different story. Oh, yeah, the one difference was um, the huge big breakthrough was in map generation. I devised an algorithm similar to the game of life where it would generate the dungeons. And so if you start up Gemstone Healer, you type in a 12 character passcode. And whenever you type in the same passcode, it generates the same dungeon out of trillions of possibilities. And it does so using uh, two algorithms. One connects the rooms together and then the other one fills the rooms while making sure there's a 100% guarantee that the algorithm provides to allow for a pathway to go from any number of doors. You could have one, two, three, or four doors, and I had to guarantee a pathway. I, I wrote an algorithm to do that, and I got it wrong. So we had a deadline. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, I have a deadline, and, and I got the algorithm wrong. I made the wrong choice. You know, I, I should have chose... The zero approach instead of the one approach. So in 22 hours, I had to rewrite this massive uh, amount of assembly language code, and it was nonstop. And, you know, I, I shut the door, and you know everyone else was partying, and you know because we were near the release, and uh, so it was a, a frantic time. But I got it working, and uh, so we we then shipped that one, and then later we did a a port to the Macintosh uh, of Gemstone Warrior. 
So how how did you get started on the uh, Apple II then? Um, well, I when I was a teenager in Edmonton, um, the you know the, the TRS eighty came out, so I was interested in microcomputers because my dad was into computers before I was born. He was an early adopter in civil engineering back in nineteen fifty five. I would also work at his engineering office on their thirty two bit. Oh, what was it? Uh, it was an Interdata 732 mini computer. I, I did the nightly backups and stuff like that. You know, just high school kid jobs. Uh, <laughs> putting tapes on the reel and backing it up and stuff like that. And I would I would play around with it. That's where I started programming BASIC is on that mini computer. And then I got an account at the University of Alberta because I'd bicycle uh, across Edmonton, down the river valley, and up again, I'd, I'd bicycle over blueprints and or do pickup runs because he they, they worked a lot with um, professors at the university and used the equipment there as well. So I kind of got into computing that way, and uh, then the Apple II came out, and when I moved up uh, from Edmonton to Vancouver, as soon as I graduated from high school, um, I started working at a store called CompuShop on Georgia Avenue near the the uh, Bayshore Hotel. So I, I purchased an Apple II pretty quickly within a month or so under an employee plan they had. Do you remember what it was about the Apple II that appealed to you over the other machines available at the time? Uh, I was just friendly and, and it wasn't like that pet you mentioned earlier with the tiny calculator <laughs> keypad, which I first yeah. started using inside a, at a Hudson Bay calculator booth. Hudson Bay's an apartment store in Canada, and and they had it at the calculator, you know, glass showcase, <laughs> and, and it was like, what the heck is this with a weird keyboard? Because I already was already used to terminals with proper keyboards, right? Basically, I'm like kids today. Uh, I had early, you know, introduction to computers through. You know, there was always a, a tape terminal at home as well, so the yellow tape. A teletype terminal at like 110 baud mm, that my right. dad would use on a Saturday afternoon so he could be at home with the kids. Um, and then, I don't know, I, I just liked the 6502. It seemed like a simple processor. And I, I picked up the, uh, there was a green manual. I can't remember who published it. Um, and I wore that out. I mean, I still have it. And it's like really worn. I must have read it a hundred times. And I, I was just totally into assembly language. I, I still... You know, I see license plates with BNE on them. That's branch not equal. <laughs> and I'm like, yep. I'm still seeing, you know, 6502. And then, like I said earlier, I, I actually, there, someone cut one open and then they photographed. I can't remember the details, but there's a website where they actually show you the inner workings of a 6502. So I, uh, about a year, two years ago, I, I studied that for a month and actually comprehend how it works inside now yeah and there was a couple instructions that would have been useful <laughs> yeah <laughs> that i didn't know about so there's a cool site i think it's called the visual 6502 or something might be I what think you're thinking that's of. It. it's actually yeah they've actually simulated it at the pn junction level so you yeah can exactly run like code on twenty thousand. yeah some of the yeah, twenty thousand yeah, so transistors you, you, and and uh, yep. I was at the same time I was I've been studying field programmable gate arrays to put some compression algorithms into chips so they're right next to the camera sensor chip for higher compression ratios. 
And uh, that's why I got into that, because it's, it's interesting to a low-level hardware hacker or designer. So, sorry, I'm not a hacker. I'm a designer. I design things. <laughs> uh, I, I know the difference between hacking. I prefer when I can actually design, because then you get it the way you actually want it. Which was what we did with um, Gemstone Warrior. Like, we were comparing other games when we designed it. Uh, like Castle Wolfenstein, you run around and you get shot and it takes two minutes to start a new game. Or you bump into a wall and the screen goes and just flashes for, you know, I don't know if you remember that. But oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you're frozen for like, what, five, ten seconds? It's like, what's the point? So we wrote down a list of everything we liked about Castle Wolfenstein and everything we absolutely were going to do away with or fix. So... How did I, you know, the first, the, the same, like the graphic system that took four times to get speedy enough, the same thing happened with the disk system. And it was four iterations. I came up with a fifth one, but we didn't ship with that. We didn't need it. We had met our target. And there was this article in Byte magazine that talked about the human response time to noticing a delay on a computer is about a third of a second, 300 milliseconds. So we decided that our room changing had to be close to that. So it was, you hardly noticed it. And then the starting of a new game had to be almost instantaneous because, you know, we want to be playing, not waiting two minutes. And what Wolfenstein had done is they were rewriting all the, the rooms. Whenever you died, they would go and reinitialize the game and write the disk, but they were using Apple DOS 3.3's disk writing code, which was terrible. <laughs> so what I, I, the various versions of the disk system in Gemstone Warrior did, basically I kept shedding layers of Apple DOS until I got to the very core, which was just the 4K read and write a disk sector routine. So that's the only Apple code that's in my, in our game. So when you boot up the gemstone disc, the only app, the only code remaining from Apple is that four or so K of code. That's the disc read, write sector routine. That's it. So really gemstones its own OS. And the only other piece of code that I got from someone was the sound system from Jeff Sember. And I, I really do appreciate that from him. There's a video I made recently putting the uh, recording a, a, a YouTube video of Jimson Warrior through the new Roland uh, System 1M modular uh, or semi-modular synthesizer, and it sounds amazing. It's just incredible. It's it's out there on uh, Mount Thor uh, on uh, on YouTube. So the sound was really great, but again, the problem was there was no interrupts. So, you know, as as the game loop is proceeding at about nine frames a second. There's a balance between the sound that's playing. I, you know, I can't take up too much time. So that's kind of sort of set the nature of the sound, the audio experience for the player. And then there's the scrolling. So that took time and we had to balance the vertical and horizontal. So it would take an equal amount of time in each direction. Because again, no interrupts. And then we had to do what's called, I invented a, Algor algorithm for um, artificial intelligence so the monsters were smarter than they were in other games that was another thing on our list that the monsters could go around corners they didn't just plot a straight line to you and, and bump into the wall constantly you know 
So in, in almost, not all cases, but about 90% of cases, the monsters go right around the islands in the dungeon or around corners to get you. And, I hated uh, that feature. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I made that feature just for you, Mike. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and then all the, the monsters were all different. We, we did a lot of design work and thought about making each one unique and different characteristics. So the skeletons are different than the hydrogen balls, uh, which blow up. Although they, they were sort of only close proximity. They wouldn't care about you unless you're within like three or four spaces. Whereas the, the, uh, all the other monsters, as soon as they saw you, they'd come after you. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked about both of those games was how deep the, the story felt. I mean, even though you were playing an arcade game as opposed to like, you know, Ultima, which was more of an RPG, um, there was still a lot of depth to it. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, we put a lot of effort into that. We even coined a term, um, which uh, is reality resolution. So we pushed the reality resolution as far as we could. That's how many details. It's like pixel resolution. You get bigger and better screens, and now the retina screens on a little eye, you know, on the uh, Apple devices. And so that's what we were doing. We were increasing the resolution as much as we could, given the hardware and the time it took to program it. I like that reality resolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was pretty cool. And and you know, with the map, the map was actually pretty chunky because you know it was it was really uh, it wasn't even the full width of the screen, which was forty bytes. That's twenty squares. I think it was eleven by eleven grid, and you moved in it always in the center, and the map moved around you. Um, and we showed it at uh, a conference at Robson Square, an old, an old computer show, and. Um, this guy walks up and it happened to be Steven Wozniak. Uh -uh. And he was like, his, his like wonder in his eyes. And he's like, looks at me and, and he goes, you wrote this? And I go, yeah. And he, he goes, oh, how did you do that? How do you make it go so fast? <laughs> <laughs> so he was, he was asking me, I shouldn't have told him because he seemed a bit disappointed when I, I revealed the actual truth of it, which I've told you here about the block architecture moving two bytes at a time and and truba had done all the fractal look to it so in in the second game the actual room the blocks were automatically placed so there was you know and it figured out which block needed to be there to give the jagged edges to make it artistic yeah it was it was a neat meeting was that was uh, pretty nice and there's another part of the story there is like years later after um Jumpstone Warrior, you know, it ceased to sell and everything. And uh, I was on a, a vacation with the family over in Ontario on an island uh, that a friend owned. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I scribble down 13 assembly language instructions and I go back to sleep. So it turns out six months earlier, I had read an article that described the exact layout in excruciating detail the apple II 8k memory map there's two of them so two screens and it used um buffer um flipping so you're always changing the the vert the screen two when screen one is being displayed and vice versa so you're always it's double buffering and and so you change make your changes in the screen that isn't being displayed and then you poke a location 
your right to a memory location, and boom, it, the hardware switches which screen's being displayed. So that's how it got the smooth animation. But this article described in excruciating detail how the screen was laid out. So those 13 instructions I, I wrote in my half-sleep, um, that made the graphics twice as fast. Because I, I could do the math for, for moving the blocks around, I, I could do the math with 8-bit um, address calculations instead of 16-bit. And on an Apple II with 1 megahertz clock rate, you're getting anywhere from 250 to 300, maybe 400,000, depending on the instructions. 400, well, 250 to 300,000 instructions a second. So that's really your clock timing. And for example, that music code that's in the game is specifically written to be based on the timing of the instructions to give it the correct frequency output through the speaker, which you could just push on or off. So it's a one bit digital to analog converter, one bit, not like the 24 bit recording, you know, that we make today or um, this described the, the layout and it turned out that you could just add the index for the next row, the next uh, row of pixels. And that was just an eight bit number. And uh, it worked out, I could rearrange it a little bit, and boom, I, I got uh, a graphics code twice as fast. And uh, I did start using that in another follow-up game, but uh, that never went anywhere. The Apple II's uh, era was gone. So it sounds like, um, obviously, this was a, a lot of, it's a big project. Um, did, had you done anything before this, or, or did you just kind of dive in and say, this is what we're going to do? I had I had written um, I'd been studying the you know since 1980 I'd been studying assembly language on the 6502 so and this was October of 1982 so I'd had a couple years of practical study and I was writing assembly language code and collecting it from FTP sites off the file transfer protocol sites off the internet bulletin boards and stuff like that I was collecting uh, assembly language code source code and uh, modifying it and so I, I i knew how to use all the tools and and well we just dove in we, our goal was to create a commercially successful video game that was in the arcade action at our what do we call it we call it adventure cade trademark you know <laughs> uh that's our genre that that we did and and actually at the 1985 ces show we won an award for the best new uh, arcade adventure game. Sort of, we define the category. It's great that people, you know, call Diablo uh, or Diablo a, a sort of a, a follow-on style of game. Uh, I always thought so too myself. It'd be interesting to talk to them, whoever wrote that, and, and ask them if they had played Gemstone Warrior. Or not. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so this was literally the first game you'd ever written, then. Yes. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we were we were dedicated to quality. We had quality was our commitment. But you know, I look at the game now, I play it and I, I say, Oh, I found a, a bug. Oh <laughs> <laughs> a visual glitch. Uh sometimes the explosions um uh, don't quite map they, they had a masking operation to not go over top of the walls, but in a couple cases they do. But no one, no one except me would ever notice that. Oh, except I just told everybody. <laughs> well, we won't tell anyone. 
Okay, good. That's great. It's just between the three of us. Nobody, nobody listens to this anyway. <laughs> Did you also compose the the music and the sound effects? Because I that was a a big part of the game for me was was hearing hearing the great sound that went along with the, the graphics. Oh well, thank you. Um, well, there's the introduction sound as just as you're walking into the dungeon, and that I think is actually a piece of classical music, actually. Someone recently told me what it was about a year ago, and I, I, I just, sorry, I can't remember at the moment. Um, so that was, I think, a piece of classical. And then, which it works perfect for arcade games, surprisingly. It's quite nice. And it sounds beautiful on the, uh, the, the recording I did with the uh, new Roland synthesizer. But then the, the game sounds, we had to come up, that was all trial and error what because we didn't have much time right so it's a loop nine nine or ten frames a second so you know you only have uh let's say just for round numbers it's 10 that that's only about 100 uh, milliseconds per frame we had to move the frame we had to do the monster intelligence we had to do the for all the monsters there was up to nine monsters in a room and it was an incremental monster intelligence i had studied the logo language and it had algorithms for going around things but i had to that wouldn't work because you have to run that algorithm fully and that took too much time so i had to come up with incremental movement so it would actually it would kind of guess a spot and it would head towards that and if the guess was not better than each turn it would it would recalculate the guess point. And, it, and part of the record of the monster was to store the X and Y coordinate that it was heading to. And then there, of course, it knew where you were. So the sounds were where we had to pick and we had to, that was just trial and error. Well, I'd say the whole thing was very successful then. <laughs> yeah, there, there was about half a million users. Um, not sales, but users. So it was, uh, <laughs> or maybe it was sales and then there's two, I can't remember. It was actually quite successful. And for many months, it actually carried strategic simulations, uh, paid all the staff, everything. So, yeah, I was one of those that, uh, I don't know if this is good to admit or not, but I, I had a pirated copy and uh -huh. you know, the way that the way the Apple II thing worked with those games that you didn't necessarily get from a legitimate source where you just boot it up and start pressing keys to see what happened. And there was so much going on in the game that, that I couldn't figure it out. So I went out and, and bought a copy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we put in a lot. I'll have to tell Troop of that. Uh, <laughs> that, that caused you to go buy it. That's great. Uh, yeah. Yep. Well, that, that's, you know, the, the whole thing that shook up the music industry is the same thing. You know, often people hear it first uh, through a download or a friend giving it to them, and then later they decide to uh, support the artist. Well, I wish I could say that my motives were that pure, but I just <laughs> wanted to be able to play it, and I couldn't figure it out. Well, year, years later, I actually uh, was doing consulting with a company in Vancouver, and I'm, I'm big into the small talk language. And uh, so that's, that's what I learned after assembly language was small talk. And I kind of bypassed C. I actually learned C after learning small talk. So, um, but anyway, I was consulting with this company, teaching their, their people small talk. And uh, one of the guys, the owners of the company, turned out to have uh, not only cracked Gemstone Warrior on the Commodore 64. No, I, I think it was the Apple II version. 
but he published how to do it in hardcore <sighs> Apple Hacker magazine or something. Computist, yeah. Yeah, he actually published how. So, and there he is interviewing <laughs> me for a job, and he looks at the resume and goes, "Oh, you wrote Jump So Warrior? I hacked it." And I'm like, "Oh no." <laughs> 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 Actually, we turned out to be good friends. Uh, well, I guess good for him for admitting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm afraid I can't claim to have a legitimate copy of it because uh, my pirated copy is now on viral video for <laughs> for the world to see. Clearly. Yeah, yeah. That actually uh, the the an official version boots up. It goes from Apple II at the top to Gemstone Warrior. So there there's no other intermediate. Uh, graphics or text that's how you know it's an original um and uh yeah it turned out there the copy protection uh, was used uh, I mean, and it had one byte you change one byte and it deactivated it i mean it wasn't the strongest thing in the universe um and on the it was i think a december 27th or 28th it was just about to go uh, of 1984 it was just about to go to publication and i had a bug i had to fix while i was in toronto on vacation i literally just changed a byte on the drive disc and then that master disc was fedex to them or i told them which byte to change i can't remember something like that and then it went to press and they started pumping out copies the artwork was done by somebody at the, an artist they hired uh, the standard artist they had i guess he had done a lot of their box covers Truba's sister, Kaylee, had helped with the writing of the story. So th there's this movie, The Fifth Element, that deals with the five things, you know, the fire, water, air, and um, earth. And the fifth element, of course, in Jimson Warrior is the warrior, right? Just like in the movie. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think, I, I think we're old some royalties or something. Yeah, I think they. I think it's pretty clear they stole your idea. Yeah, it, it, so it's not just uh, Diablo uh, that that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's also that awesome movie. Uh. Although you probably would have had a lot more sales if you'd figured out how to put Mila Jovovich in your game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I think so. Yes, <laughs> it worked for Resident Evil anyway. And if we had gone onto the PC platform, which was uh, a big mistake business-wise. <laughs> so you did the two uh, Gemstone games on the Apple II, and then you you went ahead and, and moved forward to the PC? What, what happened there? Uh, no, we moved to the Macintosh. Oh, right. Okay. And that was a, a business mistake. I mean, the sales weren't that great, and it, technically it was a massive effort to rewrite all the assembly language code. And okay. uh, I had to do that alone. So it was, and it was really nothing for Truba to do. So he went on to other things. So that's kind sure. of where things were left. And uh, I've tried to get him interested in another, a third one, uh, or a new series with similar ideas. But uh, no, not yet. I do have some ideas, though. Do like a Kickstarter for the third title in the series, like they did with Wasteland? Oh, that's an idea. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Or you could do uh, an iOS uh, reboot like uh, iOS Silver has done, uh, or uh, DinoEggs has also done that. Yeah, I was actually looking uh, to partner up with someone to do that um, a couple years ago. But uh, now that there's the whole Kickstarter thing, that puts a new angle on it. 
it was it was really interesting experience doing it because we were so committed to quality and providing a reality that had some depth and that was fun and that, that had the elements of Dungeons and Dragons as well as arcade games and and that had a fast pace to it like Load Runner or or Castle Wolfenstein or you know any of the shoot 'em up games that uh, the arcades like Pac Man or whatever. But we wanted to have it have a reality that gave people an experience. So, so what uh, what did you go to, go on to do after Gemstone Warrior or Gemstone Healer? I I was like I said I was working on um, an, another game by myself, and I, I went on to learn Small Talk, which I, I one of my mentors um, in computer science he he uh, got a copy of Small Talk and just right after Jemson was published in 1985. So I got a, a Macintosh Plus and was running Smalltalk on that, the original Xerox Park Place Smalltalk. Uh, so that took a while to learn. And then I, I worked at a company, that, a startup that was doing a clone of Smalltalk. And uh, unfortunately, they picked Gem instead of Windows. This was all pre-Microsoft Windows. And then um, I went on. I, I, I've done a lot of consulting. Um, I, I worked on uh, Wall Street for uh, J.P. Morgan Consulting and uh, got to work with uh, one of the people who had invented Smalltalk, one of the five people, Diana Mary Shapiro. And I learned a lot because I could ask questions. And I go, why did you guys design it this way? And she'd wheel her chair over and give me a, a two-hour history lesson <laughs> on the design. Uh, subsequently, I, I worked a little bit with Alan Kay, uh, when I was redesigning Smalltalk and, and producing a language um, I call Zoku Talk, and uh, he was gracious enough to have a three-month-long email conversation with me just about every day where we looked at the language and what it could do, what, how it was designed, and how you know what if it changed this or that. And so I've, I've designed that. I, I'm actually still working on uh, getting that implemented. It deals with parallel programming. Uh, I have a way to do safe parallel programming. What what the Apple II really taught me was, and, and the approach I used with it was a very scientific, method-based approach to optimization, getting stuff to run fast, and to meet the targets we had, like the the third of a second to change rooms. And in the end product, it was a quarter second to half a second. So a third of a second was right in the middle of that. And most of them were closer to a third than half a second. There's just some big rooms. So I really learned a lot about uh, optimization and programming. Uh, a lot of programmers these days, they, you even suggest assembly language to them and they run the other way. <laughs> yeah, memory and CPU are free nowadays. <laughs> That's the sort of the idea, but then you get all these, you know, games, you, you get the screen flicker problem, the synchronization, and you get an API like DirectX that's, you know, built on four other layers and, and <laughs> uh, you get all these slowdowns. Um, I recently worked at a, a company managing a team and developing a, a really amazing 4K video player. And again, it was all the same optimization skills came back into play. And chasing down, why is that slow? Oh, there, this API has too many layers. Uh, we need a lower API to get to get the performance and uh, or you know it's we, we rewrite stuff for the gpu parts of the the uh, compressor 
and uh, great it works incredibly fast on the GPU but because it's going through the PCIe bus it's very slow it's a huge amount of data it can generate boom instantly quick like 200 times faster but it takes about 200 times to move the data over the bus so it was like okay until there's a faster bus it's, it's cheaper to do it on the CPU speed wise but it's rare I, I mean one of the guys I hired was actually for that project was actually started around the Apple II era again this on the Apple II and he had worked on an ascent, paid assembly language project every year till till I came across him in 2010 and uh, I hired him so he had the <laughs> skill set he didn't know C very well I didn't I didn't care I mean he was amazing at optimization so we got along famously yeah, a lot of those old 8-bit programmers have gone into embedded systems nowadays because those skills are still really valuable there and there's still a lot of assembly language and microcontrollers and so on. Yeah, and, you know, the optimization skills are a black art. You know, even my nephew, uh, uh, Sam, uh, love me shouting out to him. Anyway, even he is like, C++. And I'm like, oh, come on, we can go faster than that. But often you don't need to, so that's fine, like, you know, it's it's actually wise. I learned the hard way with that the uh, uh, Macintosh port. It turned out to run at 18 frames a second. It did have an interrupt timer. I had to slow it down to nine frames a second to be playable. So, I mean, I should have written that really in C, and it would have just run fine. It probably run at 12 or something frames a second in C, and then I could have ported it to the PC. So easy enough. I really should have done that. That was a business mistake, uh, you know, partly strategic simulations, partly us just not understanding the market as well as we should have. My technical bias was, you know, I didn't like the 8086 chip. Sure. So that was... Who does? <laughs> yeah, well, now I do. Now, actually, <laughs> Intel's done it and AMD both shaped it and done amazing work it has almost 1200 instructions it's basically if you pick a subset of the instructions it's actually a risk processor if you just leave the complex and cisc instructions out of your code boom you're you're it's basically a risk machine and a 64-bit x86 is absolutely wonderful and uh, some of the extensions they have we use them in the video um, stuff um, for MMX or XMM, and then they have YMM. We weren't really able to use much of the YMM because not all the CPUs have that yet. But those are like, you can do operations on uh, 256 bits, and, and they ex they're planning to extend that. They've made space for it up to 1,024 bits. So, and you can byte that as single bytes or as 16-bit or 32 or 64-bit bytes. I think maybe even 128 chunks. I'm not sure, but I have to double-check that. But nowadays, I, I, I absolutely love it. Um, so for the compiler for my new game, uh, new system language, Zokutok, it, it uh, compiles to native code directly. And, and again, that's so the whole design skills I learned from programming on the Apple II come into play. So do you remember what happened to your Apple II? Um, what happened to my Apple II? I, I know the one I have in storage is not the original one I had. I Actually, we developed it on... Oh, I remember, yes. Uh, I actually sold my Apple II to my dad. And, and he added a Z80 uh, card on it 
add-on board that allowed uh, him to use Fortran, which was his language in civil engineering. And then he sold it. Um, but I have an Apple IIe in storage, um, along with, if you've ever heard of it, a wonderful chip product known as a zip chip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are sought after. Yeah, well, crank it up, install it, and crank it up to 10 megahertz, and you just can't play Gemstone <laughs> Warrior. You you walk into a room, and the demon is already biting you, you know, and it's like dead in seconds. Uh, it's, it's hilarious. Um, there is a Win95 um, emulator, uh, uh, Apple II sort of emulator, that, that's the best one for Gemstone Warrior. But I can't seem to find it anymore. I don't know. So maybe the internet does forget. Is it Apple Win? Maybe. I think that's kind of a, that's a good PC one. Yeah. Yeah. So that works. So you can actually play the game if you can find a good emulator. And there's a number of pirated copies. Uh, yeah, it runs great in uh, Virtual 2 on the Mac as well. Oh, it does? Okay, great. I don't know if there's an Apple II emulator for an iPhone or iPad or something or, or Android. There, there are a couple for Android. Uh, for iOS, there aren't any kind of official ones, but there are some that you can use. Uh, there's, uh, for example, there's an FTA Christmas demo package or an FTA demo package on, on iPad that actually has an Apple II emulator under the hood running, running it. And uh, if you do some tricks with iTunes, you can get it to run other software as well. But uh, yeah, officially, Apple doesn't, doesn't let you put emulators on, uh, on iPhones or iPads. I think, Mike, do you know, uh, does the uh, the browser emulator, uh, is it virtualapple.org, uh, uh, call Apple's in-browser emulator, does it have Gemstone Warrior? Um, I'm sure it does. They've, they've got a pretty uh, comprehensive suite of, of Apple II software available yeah. to play. Oh, I guess that's, yeah, yeah if, it's, if a browser emulator would work, then... Uh... But the the trouble is getting the sound and the and the video emulated correctly. It has to emulate those the hardware uh, memory locations that did things like switched the, which screen was being displayed. And so I found a, about half the most of the emulators, half or most, uh, just didn't play it well. Yeah, they've uh, the emulators have come a long way in the last uh, few years. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe it's worth another look. I'm, uh... I'm actually looking on uh, virtual virtual Apple right now. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I I've, I came across because I studied how to do field programmable gate arrays, um, but you know it's a long learning curve to be an electrical engineer type. Um, so I've been talking with other ones for a future project, and one of them was saying that he he's done like ten FPGA projects, so you know finished products that are stuff on space probes. He work, works for uh, a branch of NASA. He said he on one of the projects they got this library of stuff that you know transistor descriptions that were already in, so they just leveraged off someone's library. And but he dug into it, and he, what he found was a a Apple II, sorry, a sixty five hundred two processor inside this field programmable gate array library. So there he was again programming a sixty five hundred two that's in some space probe because <laughs> part part of the field programmable gatorade what that those are is just a collection of transistors that are routable where you you specify the connections between the transistor units well it's usually 15 or so transistors they form a bundle that do certain logic functions and and then you have this whole wiring matrix where you hook up stuff 
and then you can reprogram the chip in the field. That's why they call it field programmable transistor gate array. So it's just interesting that the 6D Vival 2 continues to exist in, in undiscovered places. It really is a beautiful processor, and, and a lot of the, the ARM design is, is uh, the 6502 design principles carried forward. Uh, you know, you add 30, 32 registers instead of just the few accumulator X, Y, and then the indexing type things. So you expand that out, and you end up with the ARM processor, which is somewhat based on the 6502. And now is the largest. I mean, they ship billions and billions every year now. I think it might be up to 10 billion or something. You can just look it up. Wow. It's an enormous number of ARM processors that are shipped and made every year. Yeah, it's funny. Everybody remembers the big processor war between Intel and, and Motorola and the others. But uh, meanwhile, ARM actually quietly won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the OS war between Microsoft and and uh, Apple, and Apple won, like every iPhone is actually a next step system. That's right. Yeah, next step won that one. <laughs> yeah, next won that, and no one even knows. And I became, I, in 91, I got my first next. Yeah, I was actually, I was going to ask if you did any Objective-C programming. It's got a lot of small talk influences. Yeah, that that's, I started studying C a few years before I got the next, but I, I love Objective-C. It's based on small talk, uh, sort of loosely. And now they, they have Swift, their new new version, which it really is a better language. Objective-C was nice. I, I did a lot of programming on the next. Actually, at, at J.P. Morgan, I implemented um, drag-and-drop. So the next base, or Macintosh-based, Mac OS X-based drag-and-drop from here. You drag something, drop it there. That was my first assignment. I did that in under two months. And I implemented it in Smalltalk 80. It was it was fun having a Next on my desk, and I have like ten of them in storage, <laughs> <laughs> and two of them on me. I have my iPhone in my one pocket, and in my other pocket, <laughs> I have my iPad Mini. <laughs> so I actually always carry a, a Next machine. Well, uh, I can I can confirm that uh, Gemstone Warrior runs runs great in uh, Virtual Apple on uh, VirtualApple.org. So oh I'll great, send you the maybe link to that and. Anytime you want to show it to someone, you can. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, so Virtual Apple on a website? Yeah, I'll send you the link, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. And, of course, we'll have the link in our show notes for our listeners to try out as well. I, I, I was just like, wow, it's trending on Facebook after 30. <laughs> you know, it was published in Jan you know, December 1984, the last few days of December 1984, so basically January 1st, 1985. So 31 years later, it was trending on Facebook. <laughs> what? Yeah, pretty remarkable. Yeah, well, it's the, sort of the whole life cycle. There is so much amazing software that we've lost. And, and it's great to see the, you know, software that was back then still being able to be used. But so much is lost. Like, there's a tremendous amount of software on the next when Next had the, the Motorola uh, 68000 or 68020 processor, and then they moved to the, um, the Intel with OpenStep. They moved to Intel, PA Risk from HP, the Spark, Sun. They kept the, the, the Motorola, so they were on four processors. And there's just so much software that can only run on the Motorola version of the Next that's gone. It's just beautiful software.
So like the Apple II, there are people still using it. I have a colleague who <laughs> yeah. has a PC-based Next that's incredibly fast. Modern CPU, 5 gigahertz, running this old software, and it's just amazing to, to see it working still. So that, that is one advantage of uh, going through all this old software is to get ideas and implement features that were already done before and to bring it you know, forward. Because people, there was this huge dumbing down of software at the beginning of the computer, personal computer revolution. And I, I think it's gone too far. You know, a lot of software from Microsoft and Apple is just dumbed down so far you just there's no power in it you can't access the the power under the hood uh, but now that people you know this whole new new generations of, of kids they live and breathe it even if they're a jock mm -hmm. back in my day a jock uh, would never be caught dead touching a computer or a calculator <laughs> <laughs> now they're texting you know and just like everyone else so it's I think it's changed. I, I think there's a, an opportunity for people to make much more capable software. And games. The games are just so amazing these days. I can't even keep up with them. Do you still have um, your old any of your old design documents or source code from the Gemstone games? Oh, I do, yes. Um, I have a box in storage that's filled with that. I had kept a backup copy um, with my mom in Toronto, and when she passed away, I was sent this. Actually, it was my nephew who brought it um, to town and gave this to me. And it's like a, a one-inch thick printout of all the source code and the disks, the Apple II disks with all the source code, the development tools, just everything ready to go and make a new one. Well, one of these days you need to dig that out and scan it so that, uh, and put it on the Internet somewhere so we can all see it. Yeah, it, it's uh, that would be interesting to do. Well, I actually have the text files, so you don't have to scan the paper uh, well the design notes sure other uh, photo or scan them but the actual source code is in, in well, yeah, files yeah i think i moved it to a macintosh 20 years ago so we were we were talking a little bit about emulation and piracy and things like that and and mm -hmm. um, sometimes you know we can't find the old authors of this old software anymore or if we do they don't they don't respond to our requests how do you feel about having your stuff out there like the, the gemstone games in particular now available online is that is that something you're okay with so because some people don't actually still like that so i i think it's great to have people playing okay. it um you know the the economic value of earning any money from it is long gone and and ssi doesn't exist anymore yeah, that's true they, they went out of business didn't they yeah so it's it's you know it's orphaned <laughs> You know, so it, it's um, fine with me, but, you know, I'm not the only one who has a say in it. So true. Just the nature of copyright and all that. You know, it's the whole the whole piracy. You know, nowadays, you know, the music industry is a good example. I suppose the game business, too. You know, we piracy was a big issue back then. We back then we thought that piracy was advertising. It was part of the marketing. And that's basically what's happened to music. I'm actually in the middle of a music business course at the British Columbia Institute of Technology. And the whole new model that they teach musicians um, to further their career, so I've been getting into music in the last year, or to you know, be a manager or a, a record label for other musicians, is, is to 
realize that, yeah, people are going to, like the Grateful Dead, there's copies of all the music. And uh, you have to do other ways, you know, not just the sales. I mean, you will make some money from sales of the originals. But you really have to consider it, uh, the smart thing to do is consider it marketing. It's just part of the advertising budget. Yeah, I remember the Apple II software development houses tended to go one of two ways. Either they went hard against the piracy and protected everything as hard as they could and, and um, were vehemently against it. Or you had places like, you know, Beagle Brothers who didn't even protect their stuff because they like you they considered it advertising so yeah we did both so you know we did have copy protection and that lasted a while and the sales continued even after it was broken but you know it, you have to have good sales and distribution channels but now everything is downloads even major video games so you know a lot of it now with video games is you have the collaboration with other players multiplayer and you have the online experience. So piracy can really be solved uh, that way, or you're really not caring if someone has a copy. You want a subscription from them, and you want them to, you know, so you get more features if you pay, and etc. Sure. So, I mean, and, and uh, there's many more sophisticated ways of, of doing a revenue that way I'm not even aware of. I've been out of the game making business for a while. The the big takeaway for me here is that uh, you're from Edmonton. I didn't know that. I'm uh, <laughs> I, I'm from I'm from Calgary, so I think we're officially required to dislike each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that could be arranged. Uh, <laughs> actually, originally I'm from Toronto. Ah, uh, oh well. Um, I don't. That might be worse. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I I did. Carrington's from. I did live yeah. in. Uh, Toronto about 10 years and Edmonton about 10 years and then I moved to Vancouver for my grade 12. Well, nice to have another nice to have another Canadian on the show anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize you were Canadian. With my sailor mouth you'd never know it. <laughs> it was certainly a fun experience uh and and uh, if anyone's making a game the main thing is to dedicate to com you know have a commitment to quality and it quality experience and a great reality resolution whatever makes sense for that game and it uh, doesn't matter if it's 2d or 3d i mean just you, you apply those principles and and uh, you keep working at it till you have something and uh, don't let the business people steer you wrong if you're doing an independent thing do a license don't do a sale <laughs> good advice good advice well, that's that's all the questions I had. Uh, Mike, anything else? No, I think we pretty much covered everything. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us on the show. This has uh, definitely been an interesting talk, and uh, you know, of course, I was a, a fan of the game, so it's, it's always great to to get a chance to talk to their creator. Yes, uh, you, you gotta keep playing until you get up to the higher levels, and you too can be a demigod. <laughs> All right, Peter. Well, thank you very much. Well, it's been great. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. If you have follow-up questions from people, I'd certainly be willing to answer those. All right. Well, thanks, Peter. That was fantastic. And uh, Well, Mike, we got a few news items here, so uh, let's jump on into that. Uh, give me a bumper. Here you go. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. Smooth. 
<laughs> I'm awesome. Uh, we're professionals, folks. Uh, well, uh, top news item, uh, of course, uh, we would be remiss for not mentioning that uh, Kansas Fest 2016 registration is now open. So run, don't walk to kansasfest.org to sign up. And uh, if I was a professional, I would have the dates in front of me. Uh, <laughs> is it July? I want to say 17 to 22. Is that something like that? Sounds right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll call it that and then just correct it in a later episode <laughs> if we have to. Uh, it's, it's definitely in that area. It's the 19th through the uh, 24th. Ah, thank you. Gosh. Yes. Ah, sorry, Andy. I promised him I'd, we'd mention it on the show and... I choked. <laughs> All right. We're on a tight ship here on Open Apple. Yes, and uh, Mike Harvey of Nibble Magazine will be the keynote this year, so that should be awesome. Yes, definitely. Uh, let's see. Okay, well, moving right along. Uh, <laughs> one of the most common questions on uh, the Apple II Facebook enthusiasts group is, how do I plug an LCD into my insert name of Apple II here? And the most common thing, of course, is uh, the 2GS. Everybody wants to know, how do I plug a VGA monitor into my 2GS? And uh, yeah, that question gets asked and answered about a thousand times. But uh, here is yet a new way to do it, which I haven't really seen before. This is kind of an older uh, link, and it's an older method that I think was popular kind of before, you know, Nishida Radio and, and uh, you know, Ultimate Micro and so on had some of these video solutions uh, that we could buy. So this is uh, a way to do it with uh, a particular type of uh, TV that has a SCART connector on it for, uh, you know, which was more popular in Europe, but apparently you can get a SCART connector to connect to a 2GS fairly easily. And there is a particular type of TV that you could buy in the U.S. that also has a SCART connector on it. And uh, so there's a link here to those TVs and you can still find them. Uh, they give you the specific model number of the TV, which is really helpful. Um, so that means, you know, you can set up an eBay watch for it and uh, watch for one of those to come up. So uh, there's some pictures on there and the video quality looks great. So one, one more way to get an LCD or a modern monitor of some sort connected to your 2GS. So let's see, speaking of video for the Apple II, this is a very interesting thing. So I actually got uh, led to this by the Floppy Days podcast, which is an excellent listen for anyone who wants more retro goodness. And uh, they were, uh, Randy was doing, Randy Kindig, who runs that show, was doing a multi-part series on the uh, TI-99 4A. And uh, I guess, boo, TI-99 4A. Uh, <laughs> It doesn't have quite the same ring to it as Buatari, but... No, like, that's like, I don't know, that's like kicking a homeless person or something. <laughs> it really is. It's just it's just mean to pick on the TI-99 for it. It is, yeah. Uh, even the name is terrible. Come it's on, had a hard like, life. Yeah, that's right. There's like four punctuation marks in the name. Come on. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, uh, so, the, so Randy's doing this three-part series on the TI-99 for it. And it has actually a really interesting uh, graphics chip in it, one of the best ones of the era. And uh, there was a, it's uh, it's the predecessor to the uh, Yamaha, I want to say it's the V9990, which was this kind of uh, legendary graphics chip from the period, uh, from the sort of the early 90s. And a very uh, industrious TI-99 user has created a, uh, pin compatible, like a chip compatible version of that on an FPGA 
Wow. Uh, that yeah, that has a whole bunch of expanded capability. So it's 100% compatible with the graphics chip from the TI-99, which actually was used in a lot of uh, different types of devices. It was used in a bunch of arcade games and uh, a bunch of other uh, types of uh, computers and devices. And uh, so he created this chip that has it's 100% compatible and also has a whole bunch of new modes. Uh, and he sells this thing uh, that you can buy uh, on it that can be used on its own. Like it's just a PCB that you can apply power to and some signals, and it will make sprites and crazy magic happen on on uh, VGA monitors. Uh, so someone on Atari Age has made an Apple II adapter for this thing. So obviously there's no software for it. You'd have to write that, but uh, and they're not quite available for sale yet. The uh, adapter boards for the Apple II, but the F18A, which is the name of this chip FPGA thing, is available. So uh, we'll link to all of this in the show notes. Uh, but if you're looking for a cool Apple II hacking project, uh, this has got to be near the top of your list. So uh, I bought one of these things, and I'll certainly buy one of these adapter cards once it's available and see if we can get the Apple II to make some uh, amazing sprites and stuff. Run, don't walk. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a neat thing. I mean, this is definitely a hardcore project, uh, but uh, if you're into that stuff like uh, one of your co-hosts is, I recommend it. <laughs> I, I sort of am. <laughs> I'm just not as good. Yeah. So uh, let's see. We got a note from uh, Antoine Vigneault over at Brutal Deluxe that uh, I'm fed up uh, has been updated. Uh, do you know about this, Mike? Um, I Well, I knew about the original version when it was released, but I didn't know about the update. So tell me about okay. it. Well, so yeah, I guess it's uh, it's a preservation tool for uh, EDD cards. Is that right? Uh, it does yeah, I think so. the, the EDD bit format and also nibble format uh, copies of disks. And I guess this is one of, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the ways to sort of make clean copies of copy protected disks in some cases. Um, in, in any case, the update uh, now includes support for 800K 3.5 inch floppies. So uh, courtesy of... Uh, um, John Brooks of uh, Rastan fame. So that's pretty exciting collaboration there. Uh, let's see. Speaking of uh, the folks in France, uh, French Touch has been busy again. Is that right? Uh, yeah, they've uh, released a, yet another demo. I guess they're they're on a crusade to to prove that the Apple II does have a, a demo scene, and anemic as it might seem. Uh, but this one's called Crazy Cycles 2, and it's uh, on YouTube, or you can just go over to a2central.com, and, and it's in, the link is embedded there, and you can watch it. Uh, next in the news, we've got uh, Big Mess of Wires, uh, Steve Chamberlain, I believe is his name. And uh, he is the creator of the Floppy Emu, which is kind of the the uh, darling of the Apple II flash storage scene right now. He kind of came out of nowhere with this. Uh, of course, as we've said many times, he's famous for having cornered the market on DB19 floppy uh, disconnectors uh, because they're also used by the early Macs for which his product was designed. We love and, and hate him. Yes, we love and hate him. And But, you know, he's also done a service to the community by adding software support for his flash drive to basically every type of machine that uses that connector. So, you know, all the classic Macs, the Lisas, and now he's added Apple IIs. And uh, he's recently added uh, support for the uh, 3.5-inch smart port drives. And very recently, this is sort of breaking news because I just got the email about this today, uh, he's finished debugging the uh, Apple IIc Plus smart port support. So there was something different about the IIc Plus. The timings on, on its smart port, I guess, were just very slightly different. 
and uh, he said it exposed a, a minor bug in his code so yeah he fixed that so the model b will ship with full 2c plus smart support as well so uh, we uh, uh, actually got one of these on the way so we're going to give you a, a review of that here on the show uh, very soon yeah so the the model b uh features um, improved protection circuitry um, and is compatible, this is from, from his uh, website here, compatible, directly compatible with the entire Apple II line, emulating a five and a quarter inch disc, three and a half inch disc or smart port hard drive. While the Model A required a separate universal adapter for the best Apple II compatibility, the Model B has the equivalent functionality built in. Uh, the SD card slot is now a push-push micro SD, and um, it's now hot swappable. So that's pretty cool, I guess. And that's available for sale right now. And while supplies last, the old Model A versions are also available for a reduced price. I think it's only like 10 bucks cheaper, so you might as well just buy the Model B. Yeah, this is a great device, and it's got a really nice little screen on it, too. It's nice to have a little display so you can choose your disk image. Uh, the... Uh, UniS disc from Nishida Radio has one as well, but um, yeah, that's a, that's a nice feature. Yeah. It's interesting. We talked to Henry last month about kind of the the lay of the land with these uh, third-party hardware hobbyist devices, and he was saying how he likes to c- collaborate with all the other makers so that they don't, they're not all competing for the same, you know, 300 board sales in each particular niche. Uh, right. but it, it almost seems like these flash drives are a little bit immune to that because they all have slightly different pros and cons, you know, so it seems like all of us own two or three or all of these devices. <laughs> I was joking last month, uh, I needed to read my five and a quarter inch floppies and I don't even have a five and a quarter inch floppy drive because <laughs> I have my internal three and a half and I have a complete stable of flash solution, flash storage solutions. <laughs> so I just don't have any need for floppy disks. Uh, it's good life. all right so what's going on with the beagle brothers here mike well uh we actually mentioned you mentioned a a link a few minutes ago to the um to the the lcd solution and that's on oldnewtech.com which is a a new zine that was started by um former beagle brother uh warren ernst um so it's uh a nicely it's a slickly slick looking website i don't know he he did like three updates right around new year's so maybe he just had some time off there um hasn't done much since but it looks like there's a lot of potential so cool well and actually since you said the word zine uh, i think we would be remiss if we didn't mention uh that um uh famous apple II cracker uh cucumba uh associate of 4am uh was in uh a zine called POC or GTFO uh, recently. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. this kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of us, I think. A lot of us didn't realize this this magazine was out there. Uh, it's PDF, uh, kind of an underground engineering PDF, for lack of a better description. Uh, it's sort of, I, I would liken it to 2600 uh, back in the day, very much like that. Uh, it stands for proof of concept or get the frack out, uh, which is a <laughs> engineering slang. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, the the... Zine is amazingly produced. It's filled with uh, articles on hacking microcontrollers and old computers and, you know, pay phones and all this kind of stuff. And I love that it's filled with vintage ads. Have you seen the ads in this thing? They're just amazing. Just, you know, ads for Zork and the TRS-80 and uh, just wonderful old ads uh, spliced in here. And the, the tone of it is sort of has this sort of vaguely steampunk kind of tone in the writing. 
Uh, so just just wonderfully produced. Uh, so I think they're on issue 14 or something like that now. And the, uh, the latest issue has a quite a detailed column from uh, Cucumba, aka Peter Ferry, on uh, Apple II copy protection schemes. It's a really, really good read. So we'll link to that too. Yeah, a lot of attention to detail and, and making it sort of uh, really feel like um, a retro type magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, good job to them for that. Yeah, the production values are amazing. It just it must be an incredible amount of work to produce each of those issues. So uh, Ethernet two news looks like uh, Marina is finally in the cards or on the card. <laughs> see, see what I did there? Uh, I did. Oh, you're so clever. Uh, David Finnegan has announced that his, his Marina IP stack is now uh, compatible with the Ethernet 2 card. So if you have one of those, now is the time to go get it. Excellent. And, uh, well, I guess Brutal Deluxe is the theme of this show, it looks <laughs> like. So uh, Antoine Vigneault is, has the unique uh, distinction of uh, being possibly the only, uh, aside from Jason Scott, archivist of Apple II cassette tapes. And he's got an amazing collection, and it uh, looks like he's added a bunch more. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I had no idea that this amount of software was even uh, available for the Apple II on cassette, but they're now up to, to 638. Wow. Uh, 638 <laughs> tapes. Um, and they're, it's not just like slightly different variations of the same software. <laughs> These are different pieces of software, so... Uh, kind of crazy. Wow, but I, if had, you, um... I had no idea. I thought there was like 20 or something. Like, oh, it was, <laughs> it was this weird kind of tail end of the early part of the, you know, model line and never, nothing serious was ever made on tape. But I had no idea there was that much software. I, I tend to think of things like, you know, Lemonade Stand and, and Bob Bishop's <laughs> early titles and, yeah. you know, Intro to Your Apple II, that sort of thing. Um, but no, there's there's quite a bit out there. And, and you know, with the solutions that you have today where you can, uh, you know, uh, you can load these these audio files onto your um, onto your iPhone and plug it into the, the uh, cassette ports on your Apple II and load the software that way. Yeah, tapes, it's funny, like tapes were the worst solution at the time and yeah. they're, they're kind of the best one now because they're this incredibly low barrier to, to entry way to get software directly from the internet into your Apple II or directly from anything into your Apple II. It's, it's funny how what a robust technology audio is for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow, 600 and something. Wow. Um, all right, well, I'm going to put my my head back together over here and you talk about <laughs> ultimate micro yeah so uh, henry obviously was on last month and talked about some of their future plans and possibly you know he talked about i think releasing the transwarp um schematics and, and files way back when and nobody did anything with them for a while but uh they've now released the ramworks uh, schematics uh so if you and there's a this is a, a link to a, a google uh, drive page that he set up, and um, yeah, it's, it's everything that you would could could want or need to to create one of these things on your own, I guess. Cool, that's that's great. You know, these these schematics are often really useful reference for if you're building something similar, or you know, if you've got a something wrong with the machine, you know, something like that. So, more information the better. Yep, and they've also announced a uh, a four megabit. Um, expansion kit for the Ramworks 3. Uh, hopefully, they're, they're hoping to have that ready for Kansas Fest 2016, so just another reason to show up. 
Mm, yeah, definitely. I will be there cash in hand. Well, that about wraps up our news. Uh, why don't we skip ahead to feedback? We got a bit of that backed up, and uh, we should uh, read some selections from it. Sounds good to me. Bumper me, Mike. Here you go. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying out this like fourth wall thing where I call attention, <laughs> call attention to the, to, to the bumpers. <laughs> right. It's this this new thing. Uh, we're we're iterating to success on the show here, folks. At least you're not narrating your life like like Peter Griffin did in that episode of Family Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Uh, first piece of feedback I'll grab here is from listener Tom. Uh, he says, uh, "Dear co-hosts, numbers one through two, inclusive. Appreciate the attention to <laughs> detail there. Very mathematically precise." I'm a long-time listener and definitely vote for shows as long as the host want to make them. The killjoys can learn about the stop button. We agree. Uh, <laughs> so let's see, he, he uh, mentions the uh, Accidental Tech podcast has a uh, similar issue with length. And uh, so what they do is they end the show, roll the credits, and then keep talking. <laughs> which nice. It's <laughs> kind of a funny solution to the problem. Uh, so uh, let's see. Uh, we've got some ideas for uh, future shows. Uh, he wants, oh, for the, uh, oh, he's got some good suggestions for the weird game segment, which uh, has been gathering dust lately, so uh, I won't spoil those. We'll come back to that. And, uh, yeah, he finishes with two infinitum. Agreed. Let's see. Next, I've got one from listener Kevin, who has a bit of a problem to throw out to the forum. Uh, he says, I'm a huge fan of the Open Apple podcast. Listen to all of them at 2x. Wow, that, uh, we must sound like squirrels at 2x. <laughs> Uh, I'm writing... I probably sound like I am actually peppy and energetic at that speed. <laughs> That's right. You sound like you're in a good mood at 2x. <laughs> uh, and you only sort of hate the world. That's right. <laughs> uh, I'm writing to you regarding a problem I have with the 2C Plus I purchased on eBay. Uh, so he says it passes all the internal tests and starts up just fine, but the smart port does not appear to work. He says his Unidisc drives... Uh, as well as the uh, Nishida radio and other flash port drives don't work at all, but Apple three and a half inch drives work fine. So it seems to be just the smart port aspect that's broken. So uh, and apparently he talked to uh, uh, Nishida radio about it, and he said that his uh, IM, uh, IWM chip must be damaged. And yeah, I don't have a better idea about that one. Uh, so if anybody else has one, uh, Send us a, uh, a note at feedback at open-apple.net. You ever heard of a problem like this, Mike? Nope, that's uh, new to me. Yeah, I have had some trouble with my 2C Plus uh, with my Unis Disk smart port. Uh, in Disk 2 mode, it works great, but in smart port mode, it doesn't tend to work very well. And there's there's sort of four versions of his firmware that are on his site right now, and I've I found like one version that works with SmartPort, but not Disk 2 and vice versa. So I kind of have to move the firmware version around um, depending on what I'm doing. So I don't know if that's my 2C Plus that has something fishy with the SmartPort or if that's an issue with the firmware. So who knows? Maybe this is a common problem. Uh, let's see. Moving on to uh, listener Joe. Oh, this is Joe of uh, Joe's Computer Museum that we uh, talked about last month. And uh, he just wanted to thank us for linking to his museum. And... Uh, Let's see. Oh, and he's uh, made a connection to uh, Henry for some uh, related business. So 
the uh, Open Apple Podcast is bringing the community together one one listener at a time. <laughs> so uh, it's worth uh, calling out Joe's Computer Museum one more time because it's a really great site with some really cool articles and uh, amazing photography, and uh, the layout of the site is really nice. So I've been uh, spending a lot of time there browsing. It's a very pretty website. Yeah, let's see, listener uh, Joshua, he says... Uh, not that you need ideas for future shows, but some ideas popped into my head that he would love to hear about. One is he suggests an introduction to uh, pieces of hardware. Uh, hmm. He suggests, for example, the Mockingboard. He would like us to talk about a particular piece of hardware on each show. And uh, yeah, that's an interesting idea. There's a lot of it out there, and uh, not everybody knows what it all is. So maybe we'll just do that. Uh, I've got actually uh, got a review that I'm working on for the uh, Apple IIc to VGA uh, device from uh, Plamen in Bulgaria. So maybe we'll talk about that next month. And uh, let's see, number two, he says, oh, he'd like a comparison to another 8-bit platform, say the Commodore 64. Well, it's going to be a short comparison. Uh, the best <laughs> use for the Commodore 64 is as a stand to hold the Apple II up, see, closer to 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 good using using height, you know. That's pretty much how all those comparisons will go. <laughs> Just as a as a spoiler alert. Yes. Uh, note note how well I resisted the Buatari joke. That was <laughs> so obvious there, and I was and like, nope. I went, st- I went straight for the Commodore sixty four. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna give the people a break. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Kevin you know one show where he doesn't <laughs> have to feel the need to retort. So there you go, Boo Commodore. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, he suggests it would be fun to have a uh, sort of a programming uh, comparison and a kind of a technical capability comparison between all the different machines. So, uh, yeah, uh, that would be great, except I don't know anything about the other machines, which is why <laughs> it's easy to make fun of them. No, that's not true. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, one one thing I do f- for that is, uh, like a lot of us, I'm interested in all these old computers, and so I listen to a lot of other shows. Frankly, I listen to Sprite Castle and... Uh, I listen to, uh, you know, um, Antic and Floppy Days and a lot of these other shows that cover lots of different computers. Uh, so I find that really interesting to learn all the stuff that I didn't know about them uh, at the time. Uh, what about you, Mike? Do you have interest in non-Apple computers? No, no, I don't. I was uh, <laughs> To the point? Yeah, all right. <laughs> I was given um, a large collection of uh, Commodore Pets and 64s and other stuff like that a long time ago. And I um, donated them to a Commodore collector friend of mine, but I have not found much interest in playing with those. And, um, you know, I I think a lot of it has to do with, well, what am I going to do with this today? It's not something that really I can use that much, you know. And so, so my, you know, as with my Apple II and Apple III um, hobby today, it's a lot of, a lot of it's nostalgia and, 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 you know, um, learning new things about these old machines that I grew up with. I didn't grow up with a Commodore 64. I boo Atari. I didn't care about that. So <laughs> um, there's not a lot of appeal to me uh, for that. So I don't know why any of you are fans of Atari. And, and uh, you should just give it up and, and come to Kansas Fest and, and convert to, to Apple II fans like the rest <laughs> of us. Be smart. Be fun. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I, I have sort of a... Um... It's like a forbidden fruit kind of curiosity about, <laughs> uh, ironically, about uh, these other retro computers. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm sort of interested in them, uh, not enough to sort of start buying all of them and playing with them because I, I don't have, I have enough junk as it is. But um, 
Yeah, I uh, I did actually acquire, like I mentioned last uh, last month, I have a bunch of Commodore 64 floppies in a box uh, in my mother's basement next to Carrington's 2GS. And uh, for uh, I actually was given that as a gift many years ago uh, by a friend. I uh, expressed a brief interest in exploring the C64. And uh, so he gave me his machine and uh, all his disks. And uh, yeah, I'm still waiting for the first one to boot. So, um, but as soon as it does, uh, I'm sure it'll be fascinating. <laughs> All right. See there. See that that whole setup was so that I could make a joke about because the drive. How were slow the drive really is. Slow, right? Do you get it? You have to. Uh, man, you're just you're not being a good wingman here, Mike. You're supposed to laugh laugh at my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> Okay, last uh, piece of email I've got is from uh, Charles Mangan, of course, who has been on the show recently for our uh, uh, year-end roundup. And, and who uh, you've offended yet again. Yes, yes, indeed. And in the most unexpected way possible, little did I know, uh, there are rabid Newton fans out there. Oh, yes, there are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I took some cheap shots at the Newton uh, in a recent episode. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he says... Uh, uh, I guess uh, be careful what you say about the Newton, even this long after its, its demise. There's an active, rabid community of Newton users and aficionados. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's good to know. Oh, oh the Newton. My, uh, my strongest memory of the Newton, I used it to take notes. I had one in university, and I used it to take notes in a digital logic class. And I was so dedicated, I was determined to make this thing part of my life. <laughs> and uh, it has this 60 hertz whining noise that it makes. And I think it's the power saving, like it's cycling the the CPU on and off at 60 hertz or something to save battery. And you can hear it. <laughs> and it stops whenever you start writing because everything turns on to, you know, do all of its processing for hand recognition. But whenever you're not writing, it makes this high pitched 60 hertz whistle that is just maddening so i i haven't even sat a uh, newton story of my own and that's that uh i had an emate 300 oh my um, i'm sorry yes yeah, <laughs> and and i was determined to make it work for taking notes in in college when i was um doing that and uh, my goodness what a piece of junk <laughs> you hear that charles boo newton we said it boo booten boo, boo newton <laughs> There's a portmanteau in there somewhere, all right? Yes. And he would like to remind us that we are not the only Apple II podcast out there. It's going to rub our noses in it a little bit. So, mm, Yes, that's true. I suppose that we should go ahead and mention that there is one uh, called How To, like the uh, number, like the letters, the, the little play on, on the number two there. Funny, haha. And, of course, there's uh, Chris Torrance's Assembly Lines uh, video podcast. So, Although technically that's a vodcast, so there, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> is it vodcast? Is that what we're calling them? Is I that, think so, yes. Is that what the internet has agreed on? Hmm. I, I don't know. I, I never could get behind vlog either as for, for right. YouTube Vlogging, vlogs. Yes. Vlogging, I just, uh, I'm sorry. No internet, no, bad, bad internet. <laughs> but they're both excellent podcasts and you should check them out. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, we've actually talked about uh, Charles's uh, show, uh, How To, in the past. Uh, uh, pretty recently, actually. He's got a really great video on how to install his... Uh, earphone jack kit that he sells for the 2c plus it's great really nicely produced videos all right well that's all of the emails i have do you have any feedback in your list mike 
No, I think that's uh, pretty much all I have for this month. Okay, well, uh, I think that wraps up the show, unless there's anything else you want to add. Nope, just uh, thank you again to uh, Peter for coming on and talking about uh, the Gemstone games. Mm -hmm. Definitely enjoyed that. It's always nice to hear from the creators. And uh, we'll see you all next month. Thanks very much, Peter. And uh, yeah, bye, everybody. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. demon's been detected. <laughs> Alright. That was fun.